Well, we live in a world that understands the danger of impurities, don't we? Our bottled, watered world puts a premium on drinking and eating things that are clean, right? It just, it does. There are even federal regulations that are set up by the Food and Drug Administration as well as the Occupational Safety and Health Association known as OSHA that set standards for restaurants and food facilities to make sure that the possibility of contamination is minimized as best as it possibly can be. And the reason being is that it only takes a little bit of poison to cause a major illness or in some instances even death. Just listen to a few of these stories. Grabbing groceries for a cookout and then grabbing containers at dusk in the backyard often goes on without a hitch. But last summer, an attractive-looking brand of tiki lamp oil ended up poisoning people across the United States. You guys know what the tiki torches are, right? We, we don't have many mosquitoes in California, but they're used all over in the Midwest and the South because they help with... Um, you put the oil in and it helps eliminate the mosquitoes. New Jersey officials issued a warning after six people drank the oil, mistaking the jug-sized container and yellow liquid for apple juice. According to reports by the Associated Press, one elderly woman died last summer and an eight-year-old child suffered permanent lung damage from consuming the toxic fuel. Here's another story. The owner of a small daycare center in Little Rock, Arkansas, pulled out a plastic container of electric blue liquid and filled the cups of 10 children at her facility. It only took a couple of sips before the kids realized that the Kool-Aid was bad. But an ounce of the windshield wiper fluid was enough to send all the kids to the nearby hospital, according to the Associated Press. And then we have this story. A 29-year-old woman in England woke up, stumbled into her bathroom looking for some eye drops. She squirted liquid from a small dropper bottle into her eyes and immediately knew something was wrong, according to reporting by The Telegraph. She had grabbed highly toxic nail glue that binds to skin in seconds. She managed to stop it hitting the center of her eye, and doctors later told her that it saved her from permanent damage. She told the Telegraph it was agonizing. It was burning so much, it was my natural instinct to shut my eye. She sat through eight hours of having her eye glued shut before a medical team could separate her lids. So far, she has no permanent damage to her vision and a tale to tell. Yet poison experts said the scenario isn't so uncommon. End quote. In all three of these stories, they share a common denominator, and it's this, that it only takes a little bit of poison to, or our toxic substance to have devastating consequences. And God's word instructs us that believers are also vulnerable to spiritually toxic elements that can also cause us harm. And it describes this experience like having a little bit of leaven or yeast in the dough of bread. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, in the Apostle Paul's letter, to, uh, uh, letter of correction, he was writing to the Corinthians about their pride. And he wrote, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole dump, whole lump of dough? Uh, I almost said the whole dump of low. Okay. <laughs> what Paul was saying is that in the same way that a, a, a little yeast or a little leaven 
permeates, right, and has a negative or impact on, on a lump of dough is the same way that a little bit of leaven in the, the Christian life and the spiritual life can invade and permeate and impact your spiritual walk and compromise the body of Christ. Well, in today's passage, Jesus will warn you and I about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And our sermon title is actually a partial quote from verse 15, which drives at the heart of this passage. Watch out, beware of the leaven. What dangers was our Lord trying to get his disciples to see? What takeaways and principles of application might he have you and I Consider so that we don't have a little bit of leaven sneak in and have a negative impact on our spiritual walks. Let's tackle the text together and begin like we customarily do by reading our passage together. Mark 8 verses 14 through 21 says this, and I'm reading from the New American Standard. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he, Jesus, was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? First, it goes without saying that Jesus is a brilliant teacher. And he had this remarkable ability to take everyday objects so that he could teach spiritual truths, uh, objects that were in the lives of the people. You may recall that when he was with the woman at the well in John 4, he used the, the, the picture of water to, to describe the eternal life-giving water that only he can provide. He also uses a lamp as a physical illustration, and, this, and it reflects the spiritual light of salvation that only he can provide. He used a tiny mustard seed, if you'll recall, to describe and illustrate what the kingdom of God was like and how it was going to start small and it was going to grow big in greatness. In the recent weeks, he's used bread as an object lesson, and specifically baskets of leftover bread to symbolize his providence to all mankind. And in our study today, we're going to see the Lord use the disciples' focus on physical bread to teach spiritual truths about leaven. Leaven is a fermenting agent, like yeast that enables dough to rise when you make bread. The influence of leaven greatly impacted how bread was made, and more is going to be said about that under our second point. But for now, I want to qualify the term so that when we study our passage today, we understand what Jesus is saying about leaven. What does he mean? He's talking about the negative influences that come from false teaching and misapplication of God's word. 
specifically the negative influence and the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And this is why our sermon proposition states three ways to be on alert so that the negative influences from false teaching or misapplication do not creep into your spiritual walk. And though there's nothing prescriptive for us as believers, there's no commands uh, in our narrative today, there are principles of application that we're going to be able to learn at the disciples' expense. The first way to be on alert so that a negative influence Uh, the negative influence of false teaching and misapplication does not creep into your spiritual walk is this. Be mindful of spiritual blind spots. Look at verse 14. Our passage starts out with the 12 disciples realizing that they only brought one loaf of bread for 13 men. Now this sounds like a group of guys, doesn't it? In terms of food planning. This is hard to believe considering the massive miracle that Jesus had just performed and there's seven baskets of leftovers. And remember that a loaf during this time wasn't our typical loaf that when we would go to Walmart or Costco and you'd have 13, maybe 14 slices of bread and a loaf. This is the equivalent of a little dinner roll. You could put a little spread on. This isn't enough to to, to even satisfy one man let alone 13 adult men. And at the surface, this looks like a physical problem, but there are underlying spiritual overtones. Verse 16 says, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And discuss is is, is being gracious. When you look at the Greek, it's actually the word dialogizomai, where we get our word dialogue. And it can actually be translated to argue. And given the the, the context, some have actually rendered it that way, that they were actually arguing. You can almost imagine the disciples saying, why didn't you bring the bread? No, why didn't you bring the bread? All right, that's the picture. That's what's taking place. And I believe this reflects a blind spot for the disciples. They missed out on the opportunity to serve one another. And now they're responding in the flesh. Spiritually, there was a blind spot that kept them from looking out for each other. And think about it. Only one of them brought a single, a single dinner roll of bread. little blind spot there, right, as far as the, the, the rest of the guys. And Scripture doesn't reveal who, who it is, and I think for good reason, right, because we might think critically of that person if we actually knew who it was. My guess is it's probably Judas Iscariot. Very focused on himself. And, um, but there's, there's something bigger happening here. A bigger blind spot, if you will. In the first miraculous feeding of the 5,000, you'll recall that it was what type of crowd? A Jewish crowd, right? And the disciples, if you recall on that account, those who were with us, they hadn't eaten. At least I went back and searched to see if they had eaten at any point. And they hadn't eaten up to that point. And they end up going to shore, and then there's this massive crowd. Jesus performs this miracle, and afterwards there's 12 baskets that were left over. And so 12 baskets, 12 apostles, disciples at this point, and then when they're sent out, they'll be the sent ones, the apostles. And, and, and then, of course, the 12 reflects the feeding of the 12 tribes of Israel, Each guy had his own basket. 
And they probably clung to it, if you think about it, desperate of hunger. Now, in this account of the feeding of the 4,000, the crowd is made up of what? Gentiles, right? 4,000 Gentiles. And there are only seven leftover baskets. So if we just think about it mathematically, all my math people, you know, you can see that this doesn't equate. Maybe that... um, there was some confusion as it related to, you know, which one of the seven was, uh, or the 12 was going to grab one of the seven baskets. It could be that they even showed deference, right, to, to one another, saying, oh, I'm not going to, I'll just let so-and-so uh, get a basket. In the end, they all forgot to bring the leftover bread. And whether they were assuming someone else would do it or not, we don't know. But I don't believe for, for, for a moment that this is what happened. Nor do I believe that they presumed that Jesus was going to go ahead and uh, would miraculously make bread uh, for them. I believe this is recorded to help us see that the 12 disciples were struggling with the fact that the bread and the leftovers that they had collected was handled by the Gentiles. Now think about this for a moment. In their minds, they're, they're, they're so very conditioned to, to the, the, the uncleanness of the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't wash their hands like the Jews do. They are aware of all the oral uh, traditions through, through the, the additional laws that the uh, Pharisees added that declared that uh, just how unclean the Gentiles were. And so think about this for a moment. This is entrenched. This is ingrained in their thinking. They are uh, doctrinized with, with this type of thinking. And so there, uh, to, to me, I think that this, this reflects a blind spot. It reflects something. And, and really, I think they're in a little bit of a pickle. Why? Because who made the bread? Jesus did, right? So there's no issue with that. But who touched the bread? Who did the bread get passed out to? Who did the bread get collected back from? Gentiles. And so they're still in process. They're they're, they're still being, I, I shared this before, Jesus is detoxing them of this view that they have of the Gentiles. Should they take the bread? Should they touch it? Should they leave it? What, think about it. What should they do? And Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their thinking. He knows all about their previous exposure. He knows all about the false teaching and the additional distortions of the law according to Pharisaical traditions. And this is going to bring us directly to the second point in our outline and the heart of this passage, which is this. Heed Christ's warning of spiritual hypocrisy. Look at verse 15. It says, And he, Jesus, was giving orders to them, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus takes out his spiritual scalpel and he, he literally 
cuts. It's a, like a fillet knife. He, he cuts the argument about bread right down the center. And you may have already noticed that even his response is conveniently located right at the center of their argument. It falls right at the beginning or right in the, in, in the center. And it's reflecting the leaven their hearts were wrestling with. And this is like a parent stepping in between arguing kids. Jesus brings a word of warning. And this is strong language in the Greek. This is like, you know, somebody's going to get hit with a physical object and you, 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 you yell out, you know, watch out, right? This is, there's, there's a sense of urgency. This is what Jesus is doing here spiritually. What does he say? The first word can be translated, watch out or take heed, which is the word that I opted to use for, for point number two, to heed, to heed the warning. Then he uses another word that can be translated, and these are right together, so they're in the emphatic position up front in the Greek. And he uses this word that's translated beware, and you'll notice that I opted to use those for the subpoints under the second point. Jesus warns them because he sees how the negative influences of the Pharisees and the Herodians is permeating their thinking. And he makes the connection to bread by opting, opting to use the word leaven. All right, are you guys ready for a baking lesson? We talked a little bit and introduced the fact that leaven was a fermenting agent. And the early Hebrews, they, they used a piece of, of fermented bread to actually transmit, right? It would be some years later that yeast was developed, and it comes from the lees of wine or, or grape seed, right? It's a um, that's how, where, where yeast is derived from. And so they had this tradition where uh, the, the dough would actually be the source, right? And you would have to use that before it would go bad. And that would be what would trans, you know, transmit the yeast. If yours went bad, then you'd have to get some from someone else. And, and, and on and on it goes. Because actually my wife was telling me that there's a tradition even with Amish bread. That, that's how the, it's, it's carried on certain types of of bread. So anyway, um, th so you might be asking, well, is yeast and, uh, are they the same thing, yeast and leaven? And I did a little research on this, and um, Victoria helped me a little bit too. Uh, basically, they're both fermenting agents. Okay, leaven, however, is used as a fermenting agent that's used specifically with dough to make bread or some other form of bread to rise. Yeast is a fermenting agent that can serve as a leaven, but it can also be used to make a number of other things. And we know that in the uh, malting process that yeast is actually uh, used to make beer. Yeast can also be used in medicine. It's... Um, use, and uh, I believe, to make some antibiotics or, or have a bearing um, in, in making some medicine somehow. And so I wanted to provide a picture, and my, my wife makes bread, okay? And so I, I, I brought in one of her freshly, freshly baked loaves. This is hot off the press just last night, okay? And um, you'll, you'll notice this that I had her put in, I said, well, give me a ballpark idea of how much yeast 
is actually used. And you can see, it's hard, some of you way in the way back, but there's very little yeast here to produce this, right? And that's the picture that we, we want to have in mind. That's, that's, that's what we want to see. And I'll just go ahead, and I know the Bulises are a, are a family, and you tell Kirk, happy, happy Father's Day, and, <laughs> and may the carbs be with you. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about leaven here. Leaven produces fermentation when added to dough, and it helps it to rise, and again, it only takes a little. And the ancient Israelites regularly ate leavened bread, at least according to Hosea 7.4. But in the commemoration of Passover, they were forbidden to eat leavened bread or even have it in their homes during that season, according to Exodus 13.7. And so you'll recall with Passover, it was this annual observance where the people would um, not forget that God called them to hastily leave Egypt, and so they didn't have time to make leavened bread. There was no time for it to rise. There was no time for it to bake. The people were forced to just leave with their kneading troughs and to take with them unleavened bread so that they could have something that would sustain them. And this is actually recorded in Exodus 12, 34 through 39 and Deuteronomy 16, 3. And this is fascinating to consider. But here, Jesus is warning his disciples and us in principle to beware of two types of leaven which serve as subpoints under our second point. The first is the leaven of the Pharisees, which I have called the leaven of self-righteousness. Remember, leaven does what? It helps the dough rise. It helps it puff up, right? And the leaven-filled Pharisees were puffed up. And they looked down with contempt at the Gentiles. And their legalistic teaching and traditions taught others to do the same. And interestingly, in the parallel passage in Matthew 16, 12, it actually makes the connection. And Jesus qualifies what the leaven is as the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, in our passage, we have the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And I'm going to spend some time talking about the connection between those two things. But for now, we need to see the main point here. Jesus was still detoxing his disciples from previous traditions and teaching, again, that continues to permeate their thinking. This was preparing them for their future gospel ministry to the Gentiles. And here he's making them mindful that they have this inherited pharisaical leaven which still permeates their thinking, which was also the source of their bread dilemma. This leaven was continuing to call out to them to look down upon the Gentiles, and they needed to be aware of the danger of this. And so do we, right? So do we. We, we also, what, what, what type of leaven tries to come in and, and permeate our thinking? How can we distort God's word or misapply God's word? Got to be very careful. I'm grateful to be at a church. That's why one of the ministry pillars is to what? Preach the word with precision so that we get it right. We're not careful. A little leaven of self-righteousness can cause a believer to stumble and even look at the events of what just took place a week ago from today on an early Sunday morning in Florida. We're at a gay nightclub. 50 people 
we're executed in an act of terror, right? And if we're not careful, a little bit of leaven can come in and say, oh, those people, those people, yeah, they got what they deserved. They got what they deserved. Did you know that there was actually a church down in the state of Florida that issued that statement and said, those people got what they deserved. That is absolutely tragic. And I'm not just talking about the loss of life through the act of terror, but I'm talking about that response from a church and from a ministry to say those people got what they deserved. It's the leaven of self-righteousness. And any professing believer who would be led to think that way is, is, is misguided. Absolutely misguided. They don't understand God. They don't understand what his word says, that God absolutely takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Exodus 18.32, Exodus 33.11. And if you can take pleasure, listen, my friend, and this is important for all of our hearts, if you can take pleasure in the death of the wicked, it's just an indication of how much you need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. And I say that in the most loving way. Why? Because there are, there are times even in my own heart where a little bit of leaven tries to come in and, 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 and I think that, oh, this must be a form of God's judgment. It must be what he wanted. I have to be reminded If any believer can say that they got what they deserved and they've forgotten the depths of their own wretched sinfulness and depravity, even the Apostle Paul reminded the believers in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6.11, some who were saved out of homosexuality, when he said, such were some of you, such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Leaven comes in all different types. And if we're not careful, before you know it, we can be led to believe other false teaching. Before you know it, we'll, we'll, we'll claim that the uh, King James Version of the Bible is the only inspired translation before you know it, you'll, you'll believe and teach others that if somebody takes a sip of alcohol, they're committing the unforgivable sin. Teaching like this happens. It's out there. And it's ultimately rooted in the leaven of self-righteousness and a pharisaical distortion of God's word. The second form of leaven in verse 15 to be aware of is the leaven of Herod, which I have called the leaven of status and recognition. The last mention of Herod was all the way back in chapter 6 where he had John the Baptist beheaded at his wife's request, his nieces, but it ultimately came through his wife. And the reason, because John the Baptist had called out Herod on his incestuously adulterous marriage, and Herod, according to Mark 6.14, believed that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Herod was a Jew. And so there developed this Jewish political party called the Herodians, who also stood opposed to Christ. 
Both Herod and the Herodians anticipated that the coming Messiah was going to have political power and influence. So Jesus would not only prove to be a disappointment in this regard when he shows up and says, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. Go ahead, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. This wasn't going to sit well with them. And the leaven of Herod, as I've mentioned earlier, parallels with the leaven of the Sadducees mentioned in Matthew 16 because the Sadducees also believed that there would be strong political ties with the Messiah. Listen to what James Edwards writes. Here it is the leaven of the Sadducees and of Herod implying some similarity of teaching. And they all held that, that the messianic reign would be secular, an affair of mere outward religion and of politics, and they had no just conception of its spirituality. The disciples of Jesus needed to be aware of these views, for they were much inclined to them, end quote. And his quote is spot on, because if you look in the, in the coming chapters, and since we're so close, it would make sense that we would turn there. Turn to Mark uh, 9.33. Just flip the page. Mark 9.33 and 34. And then we'll go to, to Mark 10.37. But let's start with uh, Mark 9.33 and 34. It says this. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, Jesus began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way... They had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Okay? Now look at, flip again, another page to, to Mark 10.37. And here's James and John, and they come to Jesus. And they say, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Why are they doing this? Where, where, where does this originate where does this thought process come from? Let me tell you. It's right here in our passage today. Jesus is speaking to it. It's the leaven of Herod. It's the leaven of political prowess. It's the, it's the, the, the leaven of, of having a sphere of influence that goes much further beyond spiritual reality, but enters into the social and political arena this was the leaven of status and recognition that Jesus is referring to in our passage. And frankly, it's a leaven that can exist in the church today. I mean, don't you know that I'm a member of the deacon board? I mean, don't you know that I'm in charge of this ministry or that ministry? I mean, don't you know that I'm connected with pastor so-and-so and, and I can influence him to do this or to, to do that? How has status or recognition influenced you in ministry? It's important to remember that there's only one name that we're trying to elevate in our ministry. Amen? Right? And that's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not our own name. It's not about us. And you're in a dangerous place when you can pursue a role of ministry because you have your name in mind first. Let us repent of that. Right? It's about him. It's about elevating him. And we all have to exercise caution in that regard. I hope you notice, and I don't, 
the Lord knows my heart right now, and even me saying this, that you will never see me p- pulling the pastor card. In fact, it's my preference, like when people, when you, when you come to the house, that you just call me John. You know, the only reason why I would say even call me Pastor John in the church is that if there's a visitor or somebody, they would at least know, oh, that's the pastor or something like that. But I don't, I, I'm not, I have no issue. I have no issue with that. And let us all, and, and, and I, I, I'm thankful to be uh, teamed up with elders who also um, ha- have the same humility And it's not about them being an elder in the church so that they can lord authority over. They're humble servant leaders that I look up to. And they're godly men. I'm so thankful for them. James Edward also shares this additional insight. Listen to this. There are kindred tendencies now which need to be carefully guarded against even where there is no union of church and state. Some are constantly thinking they can promote spiritual religion by the aid of government, and many care more for the secular results of Christianity than for Christianity itself, end quote. This is a timely word right now, just even where we're at with all the politics that's taking place, right? And if there are Christians who are spending way too much time and are are consumed with political influences and somehow they think that whether this official gets elected or that official elected is all contingent on whether God's plan is going to get thwarted or not. If, if that's you, just let me help you. Let me shepherd you. It's going to be okay. Okay? It's going to be okay. God's got it figured out. God's got it decreed. God knows who our next president's going to be. God knows who the next senator of California is going to be. God knows who the next president of Indonesia or whatever, theocracy, kings, whatever. He's got it figured out. He's got it figured out. I even saw, this, was, this, this discouraged my heart. I, I even saw a well-known pastor on Facebook imply that someone voting for a a specific presidential candidate, that they would be sinning, that they would be in sin. Oh, really? Oh, really? Mr. Pastor, you get to make that call. That is a modern day expression, by the way, of the leaven of Herod and the Sadducees. It is. Now listen to me, I also want to, we do have a sphere of influence as a body of believers. That's even been recognized even in political polls. We get that. And we do want to steward that and we do want to vote accordingly. And let me just say, vote with a clear conscience. Try to be as discerning as you possibly can. And other believers can even help you in that regard if you haven't had time to see what the issues of the day are. But let us not lose Focus of what the spiritual tasks are at hand, right? And that's to make his name great and to be making disciples and to becoming the men and the women of God that God is calling us to be so that we can be salt and light out in this lost world. And it's never going to be about who's sitting in the White House, but it's always about who's always been seated on the eternal throne and that's never going to change, amen? Right? And we get that. 
We get that, and we need to be reminded of that and, and let that take root. It doesn't matter who the president is going to be so long as Jesus is the king. So let's, let's not lose sight of that. So important. And let's focus on the spiritual tasks at hand. Our passage reveals three ways to be on alert so that the negative influence from false teaching or misapplication do not creep into your spiritual walk. Be mindful of spiritual blind spots. Heed Christ's warning of spiritual hypocrisy. And point number three, understand our Lord's spiritual diagnostical questions. That's a mouthful right there, but it's all important. Understand our Lord's spiritual and diagnostical questions. And our Lord is about to go on this interrogative frenzy here with the disciples, and he's going to ask them eight consecutive questions. And these are questions that are helping them diagnose the condition of their heart. And they do so in three specific ways that are listed in your subpoints. His questions rebuke, his questions remind, his questions resolve. First, his questions rebuke. Notice what verses 17 and 18 say. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? These questions serve as scud missiles going straight to their heart. They're right on target. And Jesus scores a direct hit with the very first question that he asks. And I want to help you to see this. Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? That's, he starts with that question, right? What is he saying? What is he saying there? You know why you don't have bread. You know in your heart of hearts why you don't have any bread. Why are you asking? There was leftover bread. There was a ton of bread. And your heart was blocked. And you left it behind. And there was something that blocked you from taking them. And it's the leaven that still threatens your spiritual bloodstream. It's what we can call spiritual sclerosis. Just like in the human body, when impediments get into your blood and arteries and, and the plaque builds up, there can be heart disease, right? Caused by atherosclerosis. And ironically, it can also lead to stroke. That can also, you know what it can also do? If you suffer a stroke, you can lose your sight. You can, you can lose your hearing and other important motor functions. And spiritual scler sclerosis that comes by the way of the leaven can also spiritually impact you, causing spiritual blockage in your heart, in your eyes, in your ears. And the Pharisees were living proof of this. It stopped their hearts from serving the Gentiles. It blinded them from seeing God's mercy and made them blind and deaf to the ministry of Jesus. And these rebuking questions Jesus is asking are basically saying, hey, boys, are you going to be like them too? Are, are, are you going to be like them? Is that, is that how this is going to look? Are you going to be blind? Are you going to be deaf to that reality? Because the gospel ministry that I have lined up for you to fulfill is going to call you to break bread with these people, not leave it behind. It's a strong 
strong rebuke. And what about you and I? Jesus is asking you and I these same questions in principle. How are you blind spiritually? How are you deaf spiritually? In what ways are you suffering from spiritual sclerosis? In what ways has leaven puffed you and I up and caused us to look down upon others? The LGBT community? The lower class? This ethnic group? That minority group? Watch out. Watch out. Beware of the leaven. And not only do his questions rebuke, but his questions also remind. Look at verses 19 and 20, and we have to hustle through these. As he goes on, and it even says at the end of verse 18, and do you not remember, as it introduces these questions, these questions remind them. What does he remind them? When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. Not much needs to be said here because we've already emphasized the fact that these numbers were symbolic in nature, right? We grasp that. We, 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 we see the, 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 the reality of that. Twelve reflects the 12 tribes of Israel and feeding and, and God's provision. And it also foreshadowed them feeding the 12 tribes of Israel. And seven reflects the fullness of the Gentiles. And if you weren't here for that message, in, in, in Hebrew tradition and origin, seven was a number of fullness. A seven-day week in God's word, right? God rested on the seventh day. Peter came and asked, Lord, how many times should we forgive our brother when he offends us? Seven times? Right, we get this. It was, it was a number of fullness. And Jesus is reminding and pointing his disciples to their future gospel ministry when they will feed. They will feed both Jew and Gentile through the gospel and their apostolic ministry. You know, I, I couldn't help but think of John 21 at the end where, where, where Jesus asked Peter three times and he says, Peter, do you love me? What's he say? In all three instances, he responds, feed Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Not just the sheep of Israel, but also the sheep in the fold of the Gentiles. His questions rebuke, his questions remind, and finally and perhaps most significantly, his questions resolve. Verse 21, and he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? You know, sometimes in life, I don't know about you, but you, you have those aha moments where you finally understand something that you didn't understand for a really long time. And maybe if you're a student in school, it's, you know, working out uh, math problems in geometry or trigonometry, and there's, there's several steps, and you finally are just like, aha, I get it. Uh, I remember having that experience. Football player in math. You figure that one out. But maybe it's at work, you know, sometimes there's a new complex computer program that involves several steps and you're trying to figure it out. And after much training and much purpose, sometimes it could take weeks or months to grasp the system. And you have an aha moment and you're like, yes, I finally get it. This is one of the moments for the disciples. 
And the problem is, is that Mark doesn't record it for us, but Matthew does. In the parallel account in Matthew 16, 11 and 12, it finishes with Jesus asking, how is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 12, and here's the aha moment. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you recall last week when I was telling you that when we got to Mark chapter 8, that this was a a climactic chapter because we're going to see the great confession of the disciples with Peter as the spokesman in Mark 8, 29. But it's also a monumental chapter because we have validation that they finally get it. They finally understand and the, the, the warnings and, and, and the leaven connected with the teaching of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, as well as the Herodians. So amazing. So thorough. So Christ-like. Praise his name. Well, at the beginning of the message, I shared stories of how a little poison can have devastating consequences on a person physically. And I want us to leave this study today keeping in mind that a little bit of leaven in our spiritual walks can also have deeply negative spiritual consequences. And thankfully, you want to know what we have? We have God's word to guide us. We have the illumination of the Holy Spirit, right, to help us see the truth with clarity. And you know what else we have? We have each other. We have each other to help us see our blind spots. We have each other to minister to each other in this way. What a blessing. Amen, church? What a great encouragement. Well, I'm going to go ahead and and close in prayer. I want to invite the worship team because we still have to celebrate communion. And uh, we're going to do that uh, right at this time. Worship, Worship team, go ahead and come on up. Father, we want to bow our heads right now, thanking you for this deep, rich study in Mark 8. We thank you for allowing us to see the truth with clarity. I pray, Father, that we would continue to be impacted by your word and that it wouldn't fall on deaf ears or, or be received in blindness or with blind spots, but that we could see what it is that you want to teach us and how you want to grow us forward to serve in gospel ministry. Far be it from us that we would be known for looking down on other people in some way. Help us to see that that is the distance that we need to travel to become more like Christ. And I'm thankful for for many people in our church that it's only a short distance to travel. But also want to be mindful of those that might have a great distance to travel in that regard. And that's okay too. And we are all... We all need to learn. We all need to grow. And so now, Father, as we come together to celebrate the ordinance of communion, the Lord's table, we pray that you would allow us to have our hearts encouraged uh, to be at a church that exalts you, exalts the gospel in every single way. And that's our goal to do that during this time. So we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.